From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he said, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And it's a rare thing these days, listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My dad said, listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth. And he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love ending with, I love you. I love you. Thank you. We have six storytellers on the theme of picking up the pieces. First, though, we want to share with you some good news we recently received. True Tales Radio won the New Hampshire Magazine's Award for Best Storytelling Program in New Hampshire for 2016. We're in there on page 75. Maybe I'll pass this around or have it for you. Those of you in studio, not on the air, you can't see what I'm holding if you're <laughs> just listening. But um, we're, pretty, um, we're pretty excited about that. So, yeah. Our underwriters for tonight's program, Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the seacoast. Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tales Radio and is curious to know, hey, what's your story? And Emily Spaulding, author of Red Clay Girl, who believes that when you share your story, you never know who you might touch. I now pass the mic on to our MC, Pat Spaulding, to introduce our first storyteller. Come on up. Good to see a happy, clear, fine crowd here. Uh, tonight, we've got Christine Kelly, who's coming up to tell her first story. Christine's told a few stories on uh, True Tales Radio before, and she has the very shortest bio of anyone. So if you want to take another few seconds for your story, you get a pass. Here's what she has to say about herself. Christine Kelly is a speaker and a coach living in the Portsmouth area who loves telling stories to a live audience and creating workshops to help people change their lives. The title of her story tonight is <laughs> The Surprise Visitor. Come on up. 
Um, on the topic of picking things up, I just want to tell you about like six weeks ago, I found this little teeny bird that had fallen out of the nest. And today I had the great privilege of bringing it and releasing it to the wild. It was a purple finch. Oh. Isn't that cool? That's New Hampshire State bird. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. But that's not what the story is about. <laughs> so this story was, I used to live in Winthrop, Mass. But my family, my closest sister and my niece, were up in New Hampshire. So I thought, you know what? I want to move north. And my goal was I'd move north, I'd get a job up in New Hampshire, and just shift everything up here. So I didn't really want to buy something right away because I wanted to, you know, get a feel for the place. So I ended up in this um, apartment building with many, many units. First time I've ever lived in somewhere like that. And I had the movers put the furniture in the right place, but I had them store all the boxes in this spare room, which I'd eventually use for exercise and whatnot. So the day I moved in, my then-boyfriend, Jay, and his four kids helped me unpack. In fact, they unpacked everything for the kitchen, all the bathroom stuff. They even unpacked my books. In fact, they alphabetized them. So I was really worried about how I was going to find anything, because I don't think that way. So, so after a long day of unpacking, I figured they went home. I figured, oh, I'm going to sit on the couch with a glass of wine, and Jay called, so we're sitting there talking. And I hear this crash and see the cat run out of that room. So I'm like, what did she do? But then it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I went walking in there. I'm like, what in God's name is this? I come around the corner, and the only thing I could say was, oh, my God. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. There's a car in the wall of my room. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. And everything was, you know, plaster and dust and glass was everywhere. So I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. And Jay's like, okay, you hang up. I'll call the police. I'll come over, blah, blah, blah. I get out there and, you know, I could see, the all I could see from the inside was up to the windshield. So I, it was really technically just the front end. But <laughs> <laughs> So I got outside when the police were there, and there were reporters, and there was a big, huge crowd. And I'm like, what do I do, you know? Unfortunately, it's really kind of a sad story. Um, these couple of kids from India who had worked at Fidelity at the time, they were coming home from playing um, soccer. Out of, you know, and they were young kids, maybe in their 20s, 25, something like that. The driver had a heart attack and died. Oh, yeah. <gasps> oh my yeah, it's horrible. I'm, I'm so sad about that, but I'm very grateful that I didn't actually see any bodies in there. Fortunately, he was the only one who was injured at all. And that the accident was caused by the heart attack. He, he didn't have the heart attack because of the accident. So that lent a whole air of tragedy to the entire event. Mm-hmm. The aftermath, you know when you watch TV and you see pictures of tornadoes and stuff strewn everywhere and you don't know where anything is? That's how I felt. And there was one piece of furniture in that room that was near and dear to me. 
It was my grandmother's ice chest. And this was actually the ice chest she used in her kitchen. So I walked in there with a lot of trepidation of like, oh my goodness, you know. But that thing, someone was watching out for it. It did not even have a scratch. There was no dust on it. There was no, you know, plaster or anything on it. It was just kind of standing there, you know, in this little glow of light, kind of like a halo. Ah, I'm fine. (laughs) That was virtually the only thing that was fine in there. I had to dig through. My shoes were all in there. All the paperwork that I had gathered for years. I mean, think taxes and the sale of my house and, you know, everything that you can imagine. So, Obviously, I wasn't going to stay there. (laughs) They moved me, um, or they put me up in a Marriott, you know, residential inn. Unfortunately, my cat couldn't go with me. So my stuff, I'm separated from my stuff. I'm separated from my cat. I'm in this hotel, (laughs) not knowing what's going on. And then I had to go back the next day and actually categorize all the stuff that was damaged. And that's a task when you have pieces of things. You know, you don't even know what they are. So that took that took quite a while. And then they said, well, it's time for us to move you back. And I'm like, I'm not moving in there. <laughs> so they asked me if I had a place I wanted to go. And I said, yes, on the other side of the building, <laughs> away from the parking lot. <laughs> so they moved all my stuff up, and I continued to search through the debris for whatever I could find. And... Um, it certainly, it, it took a real long time to do that. And they just came in and shoveled everything else out and got rid of it. To this day, I'm really not sure what all those things were. You know, I, I don't know, but you just kind of move forward from there. But I do know one thing. I will never, ever live in a house that is close to the edge of the road. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Christine. <laughs> I'm going to be bookending your story tonight. With, <laughs> oh, really? Well, I won't give it okay. any, but there, is, there are some similarities in a story I'm going to tell. Next up, we have Wendy Cod Chase. She is the mother of two children who lives with her husband, Glenn, in Rawlingsford, New Hampshire. She and her husband are both co-owners of Avalon Promotions, a promotional marketing company. Wendy's story tonight is titled, Picking Up the Pieces and Challenges of My Early Motherhood. Come on up. Thank you, everyone, and good evening. So this is my first time telling a story in front of a big audience like this. Thank you all for coming. And um, the other day, I was trying to come up with, I knew what I wanted to talk about, but I wasn't really sure exactly how to question it. And I was looking through some old papers, and I came across this little uh, thing that said, answer this, do you think the challenges that you have faced over your life have made you a better or worse person? So as most of you know, we all live with challenges in our lives, and we're faced with obstacles as well. In my life, the biggest challenge that I had, and I still deal with on a basically every day, <laughs> is um, in constantly picking up the peaches was the diagnosis of my daughter's childhood cancer. 
Aaron was born in, uh, on Mother's Day, 1984, and what a great first Mother's Day gift. It was terrific. I had this beautiful baby girl, healthy, happy. It was absolutely wonderful. And two years later, I was blessed with another beautiful, healthy baby boy. So we had recently moved to Gloucester, Virginia from New Hampshire, and we had built a house and was so excited about starting my new family and becoming a mom. I had lots of dreams and hopes for that. So it couldn't have been happier with that, but shortly after my son's birth, Erin started complaining about some aching in her right leg, and she was just whiny and just not herself. And I could tell in my heart that there was something was really wrong, and I kept taking her persistently to the pediatrician, sometimes twice a day, and I would sit there and I would just say, I'm not leaving until someone sees us. And they kept saying, oh, it's just the birth of her new brother, she's acting out, all kinds of crazy things. So after many failed diagnoses with her, um, we decided, we were in Virginia, as I said, we decided to come home. So we packed up the kids and we came home to New Hampshire and went to see a, a pediatric orthopedic doctor at Mass General. Well, within 24 hours of being there, we got the news that our beautiful sorry, <laughs> I cry, but our beautiful two-year-old daughter had stage four Ewing sarcoma. And Ewing's is the most common bone cancer in children, but it is very rare. It's a very fast-growing uh, and aggressive tumor, and it, it only accounts for about 1% of childhood cancers, but it's just a bad one. So my head was just spinning with all kinds of questions. I was relieved in a way to know that finally I had an answer as to what the heck was going on, and I did offer up my alphabet prayer to my higher power because I just didn't even know what to say or how to think. Um, among the spitting, though, was the relief of knowing that, but the big question in my mind and through my entire body was, how long do we have? I couldn't see ahead, and it took each moment at a time to try to figure out what we were going to do. So for Ewing sarcoma, treatment is always the way to go. It's with the start of chemotherapy to destroy the tumor cells, prevent the cancer from spreading, surgery and radiation, and a combination of all three. So that's what our lives started for four long years. After three rounds of extremely heavy-duty chemotherapy drugs, including mustard gas and some other drugs that they don't even use now, Aaron's tumor started to regrow and very drastically measures had to be taken to save her life. Surgery became the only option that we had and what her doctor sat me down and described what he was going to do it was called a hemipelvectomy and what that is is um, normally they would take the whole uh, iliac wing of the leg so the whole hip and leg and my head again is still spinning. What does this mean? How do, how do I deal with this? And uh, how do I tell her this? How, how do I come in the morning and pull back those covers and see her little leg is missing? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> so that night, we let her run around and play and do whatever she wanted to do until she fell asleep on the playroom floor. And there wasn't one nurse who stopped and said, Erin, it's time to slow down or it's time to go to bed. But the next day for surgery, her incredible orthopedic doctor and his team did remove Erin's pelvic bone, but they were able to save her leg by 
pinning it to her pubic bone and putting her in what was called the spica cast, which is, is came up, it's kind of a half a body cast. So we were all, thank God, and relieved. Um, she still had some cancerous margins, which meant that she needed to have um, some radiation treatment done after that. So then we went from the radiation for six weeks, another year and a half of chemotherapy, and over time, Erin did learn to walk again. So now, my dreams of raising a child and, and um, how I was going to do this as a mom have been completely cur- turned around and an extremely challenging corner that never fully settled down again was the motherhood took on a new course of caring for a disabled child. And I was also trying very hard to help my, and stay, keep things as normal as I could for my son. He was a baby and he really didn't understand what was happening other than he saw the bags would be packed at the door, he knew we were leaving. And um, it was heartbreaking, it really was. But you do what you have to do. So after four years of chemotherapy and radical surgeries and radiation, Erin was finally deemed complete of treatment, and she was ready to be be released from the safety net of the cancer clinic, which had become an extreme lifeline to us. That was one of the most scariest days in my entire life. You know, I wondered what was keeping her alive, what was keeping it all together. Was it the drugs and the treatment, or really had she beaten the odds? and gone into remission. So we had five years of holding our breath with scans and treatments and not yet, not yet, um, until they finally did say yes, she had not had any kind of relapses. So Erin had beaten the odds and she is now 32 years old and she is still being studied. along with a lot of other childhood cancer survivors. And the road has not been easy, and it's very far from easy. Severe, debilitating chronic pain set in when Erin was 10 years old. And we were told by the pain doctor that this happens quite often, years after a traumatic incident to the body. In the time that has followed the remission date, she has endured many surgeries, hospital stays, new pain treatments, and ever-changing medications. Kids and young adults are surviving the early cancers at a far higher rate than they ever have before. And we as a society need to understand the complications and the side effects and the quality of life issues that these young survivors and their families are dealing with. I will continue to be a voice of awareness for my daughter and other young survivors. More than likely, I'm going to keep picking up the pieces along with the other parents and caregivers as we move forward. So, do I think the challenges I have faced over my life have made me a better or worse person? I have to believe that this ongoing events in my life leading me to pick up the pieces over the last 32 years gives me continued gratitude for my daughter's life because it's an extraordinary and a very unexpected gift. I have become more loving, thankful, patient, and understanding. And yes, I have become a better person. Thank you. Thank you for that heartfelt story, Wendy. Thank you for letting me cry. 
And, <laughs> and now we're going to have the pleasure of meeting Erin Pappas, Wendy's daughter. She lives with her amazing and supportive family, Erin's words, in Dover, New Hampshire. A 32-year-old survivor of childhood bone cancer, Erin has not let herself be defined by this disease. She is an artist who enjoys photography, painting, acting, drawing, writing, and jewelry making, and who has won several awards for her work. Erin gets around. <laughs> Not in a weird way. <laughs> she can comment more on that later. Uh, this past March, she told a story here on True Tales Radio about an out-of-body experience at the hospital, watching her own operation as she listened to the music of Sade. In January, she was interviewed here on WSCA's Don't Dis My Ability radio program. And tonight, Erin will tell us a new story titled Challenging. Come on up, Erin. Okay, so some of this is going to be, thank you very much. Some of this is going to be read and some kind of just adding also onto my mom's story. Um, but first off, I have to say that I'm so incredibly fortunate, and I'm, I'm definitely telling you guys now I'm going to cry, so just <laughs> prepare yourselves. But I am so incredibly fortunate to have such an amazing mom, and I wouldn't be standing here speaking to any of you guys if I didn't have my mom. She's the most amazing, strongest, beautiful, kind, intelligent, and patient, thank goodness for her patience, person that um, this world has to offer. And I could literally write two books just using adjectives to describe how awesome she is. <laughs> and, um, I mean, she's dealt with all my normal, quote-unquote, if you can even call anything that's happened in my life normal, um, all my behavior. And it's been definitely a very difficult road because not only going through all of that at such a young age, you know, when my mom was talking about my brother, you know, he saw the bags and stuff, but I remember they brought us um, Chinese chicken wings, which were my favorite at the time. And um, he was about little past two years old. And he said, well, when is it my turn? Am I supposed to go into the hospital yet? And that to me was like, I always remembered that. And I remember the, same, the exact look on his face because I was like, wow. That's, you know, but it was normal to, if I went through cancer, like I did as, as an adult, I don't, I personally don't think I could handle it, even though I've already been through it, because to me, it was autopilot. It was normal. I didn't know anything different. You know, if that's what, that's what my life was, that's, you know, I, it was uncomfortable and, and everything, but I think going through it as a child, it's it's a little bit easier, like I said, because you don't know any different. But, um, you know, I, I normally feel like I'm a, a disappointment sometimes because I make bad choices and my body hurts so bad all the time that I don't always make the right choices. And I've been medicated for my entire life, so I really don't know what it's like to not Oh, darn, I hit that. But, um, I, um, you know, I've, I've detoxed several different times and, and everything, and so I know what it's like to not be on pain medication, but then I end up in the emergency room because my blood pressure is so high because my body starts hurting so incredibly bad, and it just, 
everything goes out the window at that point. And um, my mom has just been, my whole family has been absolutely above and beyond amazing. And I can't even imagine, you know, like, you know, being just like 25, almost 26 years old going through all of that. You know, you're in a new, you're in a marriage, you've got a house, you've got two kids, and all of a sudden you hear one of them's going to die. You know, like, that's just, I had a 20% chance of survival. And I am very thankful that I'm here. And um, I don't know, I would never, ever wish this kind of physical pain that I go through every day on anybody. And it's really, really difficult. And it's really, really hard. <laughs> but, um, and I'm selfish a lot of the time because... You know, I can't. Sometimes it's just too much. It's just, it's like being tortured in your own body and you can't, there's no way to escape or to know when it's going to slow down or stop. But um, let me get to something positive. Um, oh, okay. So the first time I ever got to play in the snow, this is great. This is how awesome my family is. I was in the spica cast, and like my mom said, it's like a half a body cast. So it went up from it went from my collarbone down to on my left leg to my knee, on my right leg all the way down to my toes, and then I had a big bar in between. And what they were supposed to, when they cut the tumor out and then shaved um, part of my femur, and they pinned it at a forty-five degree angle. So um, the spica cast was of course very uncomfortable but it was kind of funny because there was one time we were in the car and my grandmother had a van at the time and so my grandmother's driving my mother's in the passenger seat and I couldn't I could either stand up or lay down and I couldn't really lay down on the seat so I ended up um, we hit a, a red light and someone had stopped short in front of us and I just went boom and I got stuck in the middle of the seats, like right between my mom and my grandmother. And, um, but, so the first time I ever got to play in the snow, um, my uncles took a big blue tarp, they stuck it right in the middle of our, our grandparents' house, or my grandparents' house, and mom put me in my pink, you know, like snowsuit, everything. I was all decked, I had mittens, I was like set to go. But I couldn't go outside, so... They took those big, huge, like, several-gallon buckets of snow and just filled them and dumped them right on the tarp. So I got to play in the snow for the first time, <laughs> chilling in my grandparents' like dining room area. <laughs> it was so flippin' cool. And um, and my I remember my grandma even gave me some um, uh, some maple syrup so I could make like a snow cone kind of thing, and it was so cool. I just thought that was like the best and um you know and and like my mom was saying you know there were so many times that she knew that there was something wrong something was just not right and I uh ended up you know I kept talking about distended leg pain like it was in my ankle more than anything because it was pressing on all the nerves and so it was just achy. I just remember it was really, really, really achy. And, um, but 
when one of the moments that I remember my mom was telling me that or she was telling a family member of ours that she knew something was wrong because I was obsessed with My Little Ponies like I was in the fan club like (laughs) I was like I still to this day if you walk around my house there's like 85 My Little Ponies still and I'm 32 (laughs) so um but uh they had my mom and my dad had spent all night on Christmas Eve setting up this Paradise Estates, which is like the coolest pony house ever. <laughs> and um, and I I remember walking out, and I also remember just seeing pictures too of you know that Christmas morning. But I walked out and I just kind of didn't really respond. But you know I. I was excited internally, but I was not feeling good. And when my mom was telling that to my relative and she was saying that's when we really knew something was really wrong because she didn't even respond to Paradise Estates. Like, <laughs> that's not a good thing at all. But, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm so incredibly, incredibly lucky to have my mother always picking up my pieces. And... Um, being there for me and you know be my best friend my everything and uh she has gone above and beyond to just and just be there you know and um and we always say that i love you to the moon and back and she gave me a necklace recently that said i love you to the moon and back daughter and that meant so much because I just tried to order it for her online. <laughs> but she she can get my credit card, you know, at, she can see on what I spend my money on. So I didn't want her to see it. So I wanted it to be a surprise. But <laughs> anyways, so um, that's, yeah, that's pretty much, pretty much me. So thank you guys very much. Oh, Aaron, come on. Uh, do you have one other Hold thing? On one second. I, We're not quite done here. Aaron. Um, I, I uh, promised my, um, my friend Brittany and her son Parker that I'd do a shout out. Shouting out to you guys. I love you guys. <laughs> the time is 7.02. You are listening to WSCA LP 106.1 FM. Portsmouth Community Radio. This is True Tales Radio coming to you from 909 Islington Street in Portsmouth. I am Amy Antonucci, your announcer, and we're going to have Pat Spaulding come back up here to tell us about the next storyteller. I'll do that. Yay, yay. Good. (laughs) Thanks, Aaron. We've got Jesse Duthry coming up next. Jesse is new to this program, but he came to a, a workshop recently. He's got a great voice. (laughs) <laughs> You're going to love yes. Jesse's voice. Um, he was born in Connecticut and now lives in Dover, New Hampshire. He's finishing his master's degree in creative writing from the University of New Hampshire's Masters of Fine Arts program. Jesse has been a farmer, a laborer, a deckhand, and that guy with the truck that you asked to help move stuff out of your apartment. <laughs> Still doing that, Jesse? No. <laughs> Got some yeah, stuff in Oh, right. dang. All right. Tonight, he'll tell us a story about being... Um, Maybe a couch potato for a while? It's titled, 
We don't pause for commercial break. Come on up. Thank you, Pat. So there's an expectation for people leaving college that we'll go out, get a job, make some money, maybe take on responsibility. For a lot of people I knew, we just gained a few pounds, took on a ton of debt, and developed minor drinking problems. <laughs> Myself included. I did not transition well from college. After graduating, I moved back home with my mother. Uh, while at school, she was more than willing to help out with the rent and make sure I was fed and clothed. But once I moved back, I could watch myself becoming an interference. And I couldn't do anything about it because I didn't have enough money to move out. And that was because I didn't have a future to chase down. So I took the first job I could find with any resemblance to my degree in English, and that was at a bookstore as a bookseller. I spent the day selling books to customers that by and large only cared about New York Times bestseller or the latest John Grisham novel. Let's just say there was a lot of old women. I got my degree, I got my degree in English literature, no offense to the audience. <coughs> Sorry. I had gotten my degree in English literature with honors, if that means anything. In the time I worked at the store, I had not successfully swayed one of these women to read Norman Mailer, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Thomas Pinchon, Don DeLillo, or anyone that I really admired. Really no amount of selling would have done it for them, though. Um, those were the authors that I gravitated towards. And the constant rejection by the customers was a daily reminder of a job uh, that I had was lonesome. The inability to quit and move somewhere else to pursue my interests in novels and stories and writing was something that would keep me up at night. I'd go to the bookstore day in, day out. I'd get there at 9 in the morning, sell books until 4, watch TV and drink beer up until dinner time, sit down with my mother to talk about how much money I rightfully owed her while we ate food that she had spent her money on, go back to watching TV, pass out, and do it all over again. It was so boring, I wish a car drove through my house. So there was this one night, about six months into this post-college life, when I came home and decided to go through the motions again. I flipped on the TV with the same mindless repetition as any other night, and I scanned the channels absentmindedly. And then there it was, this televised church sermon. It reminded me of when I was younger on Sundays, when I'd actually land the TV on black entertainment television and watch these charismatic Baptist ministers preach to rap crowds. <laughs> and there were guys like Joel Olstein years later, who was impressively sliny, uh, shiny and slick tongue as he spoke the word of God in megachurches. But this was way more low rent. Uh, I stopped because there was these three strange-looking guys singing on the stage. And the only way to describe them is immune to the sin of vanity. Their skin is peeled back, their hair is gelled and spiked and frosted. Their suits, they give off the shine so bright, I think I catch audience members squinting as they watch. They look like various versions of Rod Stewart throughout his career. And this combination of childhood memory, um, the desire to learn something new, plus these baffling characters, it hooks me in. Uh, as I'm on the couch in my sweatpants, I turn the volume up a little bit more. The host of the show is a dark-skinned man. I never catch his name. The only way I know, uh, know him is by calling him the host. The host feeds you the religious doctrine, or so my religious friends tell me. The host's neck rolls over many times over his collar. He's got this really nice pinstripe suit and this overly loud tie and these shiny shoes. And he introduces a man named Miles Rutherford. Miles Rutherford walks in towards the stage. He's very tall and he's ghostly white. He's got all these piercings, he's got spiked hair, he wears a very casual suit with a bowler shoes, and he doesn't wear a tie, uh, looking more of the part of a devil than a saint. I ask myself, why does this show exist? And not just the point of the show, why is it on right now? Who is watching the show at midnight on a Wednesday? But then it makes me feel a little special, like maybe this thing was meant for me, and it was brought to me from God in a provincial sort of way. But then again, I have had a few beers. Rutherford starts up. 
the way we do church now, there has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a move towards sacrifice. We're not suffering from spiritual amnesia. We're suffering from spiritual anesthesia. He goes on to recite scripture that's too fast to comprehend, let alone quote. He looks right in the camera and says that we, meaning me, need to be less complacent in our lives, that we need to transition the way we live. The host, he's got some of that old Southern Baptist church talk in him. He keeps cutting off Rutherford whenever Rutherford says something smart. Rutherford is too pious to say anything to the host, but I can see that he's notably pissed. And this silent war between the two men over the word of God is just so entertaining, I can't stop watching. <laughs> and then I realize I'm sitting up a little bit, paying closer attention than most nights. I turn up the volume, but then I realize my mother is in the next room. She was somebody who grew up in Catholic school and, aside, uh, and decided to raise my sister and I without religion. I'm trying not to wake her up because I don't want to have that awkward breakfast conversation the next day. <laughs> I turn the volume down, but I lean closer to the TV. Rutherford says we need a revival against old posture. He's got the piercing, slick back hair. He speaks with this really cool southern accent. He's wearing shiny white shoes. His posture is almost too comfortable on the Renaissance couch. <laughs> I think this guy is really trying to present an image to young viewers, an image that he cares, uh, that you can be cool and believe in something. Although my cynical mind wants to believe that he may be laying it on just a little too thick. But that's not what really hooks me. What hooks me is that he begins talking about the Bible the way we would talk about novels in those literature courses and writing courses back in college. He fires off metaphor and then analogy. He starts digging out passages from strange sections of the book that back then only the teacher would appreciate. He's got similes and internal rhyme structures. There's no split infinitives and there's no dangling modifiers. And I'm going, wow, this is great. I can't understand a word he's saying, but I understand the structure of the language. <laughs> he begins pulling out passages so ready, uh, readily available to him in the back of his mind that it's not a matter of choosing one, but choosing the exact one for this exact moment, the moment that he considers to be of absolute importance. Keeps going. It becomes like slam poetry. It's fast, ambiguous, loud, scatterbrained, confusing. Probably better read than heard. I catch a word here and, near, here and there I recognize as sacrosanct, but I can't really draw any connections. I don't know what the point of it is. Laying on my couch in my sweatpants, a little buzzed and tired. I'm trying. I mean really trying at this than anything I have in the past six months. If it's to teach, then it's not working. Because I don't know these references, and Rutherford isn't slowing down to make it any easier for me. It's not helping me understand my religion or making me all of a sudden believe in God. What I really do believe in at that moment is the way um, to feel the same way about anything, the way that he feels about God. To feel so strongly and passionately about anything. To take off the sweatpants and put on a sleek suit. To quit the job I hate. To yell things, maybe insane things, without concern for what my neighbors think. To get off the couch, to go into the world. I'm not saying I did it. I mean, it was late and I'm tired, a little drunk, but I'm thinking about it now. <laughs> But before I can think too long, the camera pans over to the trio of singers. I see them with a different perspective. I mean, the first two guys look sad and miserable. One guy's singing hard, but even the plastic surgery can't really keep a smile on his face. <laughs> the other guy, the big bass singer, he's fanning this immense effort, but he's sweating, and his neck is protruding, and his head is tipped back. It's, it's just not a pretty sight. <laughs> but the guy in the middle, the guy with the spiky brown hair, it makes sense why he's here. He's attempting a smile. He's bobbing up and down. He's bumping shoulders with the other two. He's twisting his hips to these really, really bad pre-recorded tracks. And I think that this is an effort. This is faith. Bad music, yeah, but faith. <laughs> Maybe faith in the music. The faith of some surgically altered, awkwardly aging man clinging on to the last hopes of a once promising musical career. But I realize it's the faith of a believer pouring his soul out on stage because that's all he's got left to give. Because now the once idealized career of fame has sailed past, the only life worth looking forward to is in the future. When all that is promised is delivered and the sins of his past, the vanity, the pride, the greed, they all get erased. 
he will know that he never once sat back and let life pass him by. So I do make a decision right then. Not a decisive action. I don't get off the couch. I don't take off the sweatpants. I don't run outside. But a decision in my mind that I will not let life pass me by. I will no longer sing for an audience of older women and their New York Times bestsellers list. I no longer nod off to bed only to repeat the same day. I will get up off the couch at some point that's been granted to me by someone or something. I will pick up the moment and hold it and carry it close. I'll reconsider stories and writing and how they've got me this far in life. And I will, God forbid, not fall asleep. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jesse. I like that. <laughs> Next up, we have Angela Matthews. Now, Angela gave me a bio that is a story in itself, and we've got relaxed time, so I'm just going <laughs> to let's all take a little trip down memory lane. Um, Angela came to Portsmouth in 1973 or thereabouts, she says, to work in the school department, and with the exception of eight years in Plymouth, New Hampshire, right? Mm -hmm. um, She's been here ever since, long enough to have grown quite a list of her own ghost directions, all of which I can relate to. <laughs> like, turn left at the Parade Mall onto Hanover Street. Or, some of you will find this stuff familiar, others will, huh? Okay. Or, AAA is next to the AMP. <laughs> or, let's meet at Teddy's Lunch on the corner of Pleasant and Daniels. Or, the nearest gas station, why that's at the intersection of Middle and State Streets. I can picture all of that. In fact, the first time she was in Portsmouth, when she stopped at Howard Johnson's on the traffic circle to ask for directions to Little Harbor School, the waitress at the counter asked, is that the Pagoda School? For those unfamiliar with what Little Harbor looks like, apparently at the time it was a newly built controversial design. The multi-sided pods at two ends of the building look like pagodas to this woman. Oh, the moments we miss with GPS, <laughs> says Angela. I like thinking of Little Harbor School as the pagoda school, just as much as I like thinking of Hannaford's as the pick and pay, pick and pay or the pick. Angela's story tonight will take us to another recognizable but very different location. Its title is Love That Transcends. When I left the house at 8 a.m. for my short walk to South Cemetery, the sun was shining. It was six months to the day since my husband had taken his life, and it was my first wedding anniversary without him. Not long before, I'd had a dream that I was carrying my mattress along that same route that enters the cemetery, our dreams being the area where we work out the incomplete, the painful, the regrets, the loss. In my dream, I was making my way in the subconscious world to something that was no longer present in my physical world. That morning in my awake world, I moved with the same heavyweight as if I were carrying that mattress. I stood at David's grave, looking across to Little Harbor School, where he was once the principal and I a teacher. More important to this story, the place where we met. I had been transferred from the kindergarten at Lafayette School, 
more ghost directions, <laughs> mid-September to join the team of teachers in the over-subscribed first grades at Little Harbor. David and I had that attraction at first sight kind of experience, as if we knew each other, though we didn't. That February morning, it all seemed vague and a distant place in another happier lifetime. I had talked with my therapist earlier in the week about what to do with this, this anniversary, and he said, whatever it is, do it first thing and then let it go. My plan, strange as it may seem, was to stand next to David's grave and read our two wedding ceremonies. Yes, two. We were married, divorced, and remarried. David would get so annoyed with me for saying that fact to anyone about us. He'd say, why do you say that? My response was, it says something about us. And his response was, yes, it says something about us. <laughs> we just had two very different perspectives on what it said. I smiled remembering this constant disagreement in our life together. In fact, I remember hearing something on NPR one time, a man telling a story about how in every relationship there is one thing that you fight about and nothing else forever. You fight about this one thing. That was ours. We were bound not just by the facts, that chronicling of our life's events. We were bound by the passion simmering just behind the surface of the facts. As I stood there remembering, the sky clouded over, a misty drizzle moved in, and it became part of my strange one-sided plan for a renewal of vows. I began with the first ceremony, the event taking shape as I read the words, the memory of those present. I thought about my father, who had died only a few years after David and I were, were married and divorced, but before having the chance to see us remarry. He and David hit it off from the moment they met, both being very big fans of VO and water. <laughs> my father was my moral center through the divorce when I tearfully wanted what more of what little David and I had accumulated in our brief three-year marriage. That's just your broken heart talking, he said to me. Be fair, be equal, beware of harboring regrets on top of your anger. Standing there that February day, the moment was becoming my private space between the worlds and a communion of sorts with the characters of my past. So it seemed odd and disorienting to me when the car came noisily down the hill behind me. How could anyone enter my sacred space? But there it was. The car drove behind me and to my right and stopped. I noticed the opening and the closing of a car door. I could not help but notice when the car returned and stopped right behind me. I kept my focus on my mission and continued to read out loud the words of the first wedding ceremony. These rings symbolize the constant and enduring love you have pledged to each other. They are an outward sign of a visibility, an invisible sign of an inward unity. And so it went. A few moments later, I noticed a familiar sound. 
it was the unmistakable clank of a chain hitting the side of an incense burner. For Catholics, both David and I were raised Catholic, that is a very distinct and memorable sound associated with death. And though a seemingly appropriate sound in a cemetery, it was strangely out of place that morning. I turned to see a tiny and sad old woman approaching me, carrying and gently waving the incense burner, spreading the smoky cleansing scent as she walked, first around me, then around David's grave, two times each, clank, clank, clank. She stopped and faced me. Is this your brother, she asked me. No, I answered. He's my husband. Motioning toward the grave where she came from, she said, that's my daughter over there. I'm sorry, I said. It must be hard to lose a child. Yes, she replied. It's very hard, but we go on. We have to. I turned to see her climb into an old model big boat car that looked very much like the one in the 1990s TV series Touched by an Angel. (laughs) You may remember that there's people here who have seen that. (laughs) It starred Della Reese as the lead angel. It's not a show that I ever really watched a lot, but it always seemed like such a lovely promise, something I'd want to believe in. Divine intervention at times of desperate need. It was nearly impossible to continue my self-assigned task, but I did finish reading both ceremonies, which I have not looked at since. They became more of a reminder of broken vows. The next week, I returned to Dr. Stern, and of course, out of heartfelt concern, he asked me immediately how my anniversary went, and I reported on it like a journalistic assignment. I told him the story, and in telling, I filled the room with the same sacred energy and light. I told him how I felt touched by David, how I felt that that woman was David's channel, bringing me a message from the other side, and that I felt blessed in that moment by something so powerful and unknown. One of the roles of the therapist is to help us make sense of the incomprehensible in our lives. I didn't know quite what to expect from him, maybe some practical dismissal of the experience or a suggestion that I immediately enter a residential treatment center. (laughs) But he didn't. Instead, Dr. Stern said that as I told the story, he felt the presence of my deceased father. Now, this may seem confusing, but to me, his response simply allowed a place for the otherworldliness in the quality of the events that unfolded that day in the cemetery. We each saw a different loving figure from my past reaching between the worlds. He affirmed for me the mystery of that moment, the moment that confirmed for me that death is not the end. Spirit remains present after life and lives in the hearts of those who love the ones now gone. Love transcends all boundaries. Sometimes earthly envoys show up in the most unlikely way, bearing important and loving messages. 
It can be as simple as hearing a particular song on the radio in a moment of need or consciousness, or seeing a rainbow on an auspicious occasion, or in my case, the appearance of a tiny old woman carrying a message in the clanking of a chain against an incense burner. Was it a coincidence that a messenger appeared that morning, or what it, was it what a friend of mine describes as a small miracle? Either way, take your pick. We just have to pay attention when those sacred moments happen. Thank you. Thanks to Angela for bringing some of that sacred space here tonight to this space. So I am up here to introduce our next storyteller because it is our usual MC. So mm. switch it up a little. So Pat Spalding, MC of True Tales Radio, is a writer and storyteller from Rye, New Hampshire, who has been telling tales for grown-ups since the early 80s. She's been married and single. She's been a puppeteer and not a puppeteer. <laughs> Pat is one of those people who studied mime in their youth and still considers that a valid career move. <laughs> she enjoys dress-up occasions and the celebrity of being a majorette with the leftist marching band. Pat does her best to craft personal tales of love, loss, and laughter into programs of stand-up storytelling. The story she'll tell us tonight is a new one about an old experience titled Blue Shards of Glass. Come on up, Pat. Usually I write stories before I tell them. I'm trying to wean myself from that, be a big girl. So this is a story that I have not written down. Next to my driveway, there is a very large maple at the base of which are the whole series of blue shards of glass. And when the light, when the sun shines at a certain angle, those little shards will sparkle. If it happens to be June, especially early June, then I will see beside them a cluster of unplanted blue forget-me-nots. I don't know the source of those forget-me-nots. I didn't put them there. But I do know the source of those blue shards of glass. <laughs> In 2005, September, I was late for a hair appointment, and so I hopped in the van to back out away from the garage to turn out of the driveway and head to Portsmouth. Now, our van had kind of a high idol. I was married at the time. Also to somebody named David, David, different guy though. And um, so I put the van in reverse and I start moving out. And because of the high idle, it accelerates a little bit. I press down on the brake, nothing happens. So I press a little harder and it keeps going faster in reverse. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, wait a minute, what did I do wrong? Now, we had two cars. One was a standard and the other was an automatic. The van happened to be an automatic, but in my panic, was like, oh, am I pressing the clutch? What am I doing here? And so I just automatically 
<laughs> figuring this is my fault. It's got to be something I'm doing wrong. I switched my foot to the other pedal. There was only one other pedal there. It happened to be the gas. <laughs> and so I slammed into that tree. Hence <laughs> the blue shards of glass. Now there. I wrapped the back of the van around the tree. And all I think was, oh no, how do I explain this? I've done something really stupid. Oh, this is not going to be good. What, I, I've got to, I've got to assess the damage. I've got to get away from the tree. Okay, that was my thought, get away from the tree. But rather than like turn the car off, then walk around and look, I decided I needed to drive the car away from the tree. Again, I'm in a state of absurd <laughs> panic about making a big mistake. This was my fault. I didn't think it could be a mechanical problem because I'd driven that car a couple of days before and there was no sign of a brake problem. I didn't know that brakes can just go like that. Apparently they can. Anyway, <laughs> at the time I did not know. So I was going to be extra careful and I was going to just put the car in forward only after I looked at what was my feet were doing. And I looked down and there's two pedals. There's only the brake on the left and the gas on the right. There's just two. I had two feet. Okay, two, two pedals, two feet. I got my left foot out of the way. I don't want to confuse the issue with that left foot. Oh, we only need one foot, two pedals. Okay, so the right foot is on the left pedal, which is the brake. Okay, that's it. Okay, that's the brake. That's the brake. Okay. And very slowly, I'm just going to put the shift it into forward and I'm going to slowly move forward and so I did I slowly moved forward and I pressed down on the brake and I kept moving forward and I pressed harder and it accelerated in forward I was like, wait, wait, wait a minute <laughs> again bang switch foot gas <laughs> into the garage oh, no. now I had not only backed up into the tree I had gone forward into the garage so the car was busted on one on the back busted in the front and the garage was damaged okay finally I thought of something sensible I turned the key off I exited the car and I ran you know like any guilty criminal it made sense I ran away from the scene of the crime I ran to my dad's house he lived next door and I said dad can I borrow your car? <laughs> he says, why? Well, <laughs> I kind of wrecked mine. He said, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. He said, uh, well, you really need to borrow. Well, I've got a hair appointment. I'm late for the appointment. I really have to get there. Please, Dad, I'll be very careful. I just, it's not far. And bless his pee-picking little heart. He gave me the keys to his car. <laughs> what was he thinking? <laughs> but I was very careful, as promised, and I managed to get out of his driveway and down to Portsmouth and park very carefully because his car didn't have that problem that, mine, that, that I created with my car. So get out of Dad's van, and I run to my hairdressing appointment up the stairs, and I get there all out of breath, and I'm looking weird. And Kathleen says... You okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. She says, oh, what happened? Well, and I start telling her what happened. <laughs> and she puts down the comb and the scissors and abandons whatever client she had. And she comes over and she embraces me in the biggest, warmest hug. You know how some women can just hug you like it's just going to be okay and it's just a big, soft cloud. And that's what Kathleen, she had that type of hug. 
So I just kind of sunk into it, and she said, you don't need to get a haircut today. You don't need to make any more decisions. Just sit down, and <laughs> I'll get you some tea. So I did, and she did. And then I regaled her and the fortunate client <laughs> sitting uh, in, in the salon with the story of what happened. And after I'd kind of had my tea and calmed down, I said, I guess I can go home. Kathleen said, if you wait another half an hour, I can drive you. I said, no, I can do it. I said, have you got any friends you could call? Yeah, okay, call them. So I started calling my friends. It's the middle of the day. Everybody's at work. I leave messages. And then I assure Kathleen that I can go home. I'm capable of that. She said, don't go anywhere. Okay. So I head out. And I get uh, a call back from Rita on my cell. She was one of the ones I left a message with. So before I got home, I pulled over. And I told her what happened. And I said, oh, I don't know how I'm going to explain this to David. <laughs> and she said, you're okay, right? Yeah. All right. Don't worry about it. What you say is, give him a call, because you don't want him to see the car before he's got a little heads up. <laughs> so you call him at work, and you say, uh, I've got good news, and i got bad news. And the good news is that you're okay, you're fine, and then the bad news is, well, the rest. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I called up David. I never call him at work, because he knew something was up. And... Um, but David, yeah, I got good news and bad news. There's a pause. Yeah. Well, uh, first, the good news. Good news is I'm okay. Um, I'm fine. Nothing happened to me. Pause. And the bad news? Well, the car. I fill him in. Another long pause, sigh. <sighs> All right. I'll deal with it. End of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Got kind of a sinking feeling in my gut that, man, I'm married to a guy who really doesn't like me. Um, the marriage was not in good shape <laughs> and years before I had suggested marriage counseling and David said I don't have a problem with marriage you got a problem with the marriage that's your problem you go to counseling counselors are not going to be able to tell me anything I don't already know I majored in psychology <laughs> okay for somebody <laughs> who is Normal, that might be a red flag at a certain point. But I'd become other than normal because over the course of the years, as can happen in a relationship, if you become the person that takes on the problems being wrong, the one who makes mistakes, the one who has to apologize, the one who's always saying, I'm sorry, the one who screws up like I had, you give away your power. I had lost my power. Now, sometimes it takes a physical manifestation of an emotional state to smack you in the head and get you to act. And that's what banging into the tree, slamming into the garage, and having the car just taking on the guilt of being the one who was wrong because the brakes failed, that was one of those moments 
that demanded action. Nine months later, we were divorced. It wasn't that particular incident, but that particular incident was a gift to me. And so I never have picked up those little blue shards of glass. They remain sinking every year deeper into the soil. But now and then, if the sun is at a certain angle, I will catch the glint of them. <laughs> and if it happens to be early June, I will see next to them that small cluster of blue forget-me-nots <laughs> as a constant reminder that although I never did pick up those pieces, I have picked up the big pieces <laughs> to rebuild for myself a life of freedom, openness, opportunity, and joy. And fellow listeners and storytellers, you are all a part of that life. I thank you. surprise guest, somebody who wasn't on the roster, but whom we all know and love very much. John Nash is going to come up. I mean, John, <laughs> he's like confused with John Nash. Is John Lovering? <laughs> Sorry. John Nash, I just want you to know that I love you more. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> but I like John Lovering pretty well. All right, so John Lovering, the producer of this show, uh, is a retired high school teacher. He's been at WSDA since 2004, lives in Dover, New Hampshire, and restores antique radios for a hobby. <laughs> and the story tonight, it's impro impromptu story, is about trying to pick up the pieces of a relationship between a brother and a sister. And it's titled The Lip. The Lip. The Lip. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am the most uh, unprepared of everyone tonight. So this is really uh, impromptu, but I, I thought we had a few moments, and I thought I might share this with you. Uh, I remember it sounded sort of like this. Well, like it was better than this, but I can spend my whole life through loving you, just loving you. It was Elvis Presley singing that song, and it was coming out of my sister's room. She was six years older than I was. She was 16. I was 10. And she had this beautiful album of Elvis Presley. It was blue background, and his face filled the whole album. And he had that little snarl to his lip. <laughs> and she had it on her bureau by the mirror, so when she combed her hair and did her makeup, she could look at her wonderful Elvis. Well, she was going out on a date. So I decided to go in and check out Elvis. And I walked in, and I looked at the picture, and yeah, he was okay. I, I liked his music, but there was an imperfection on his lip. <laughs> you see, they had put the uh, sticker, the, the, the sales sticker or the price tag, and it was on part of his lip. I couldn't, I couldn't stand that. It just drove me crazy. <laughs> I, I needed to see what was under that, so I ripped it off. Oh, well, about three inches of his lip came with it. <laughs> The coating of the picture that came off, leaving a white cardboard underneath. So now Elvis had a big white streak right across the bottom of his lip. And I thought, uh-oh, oh, I can fix this 
Crayolas. <laughs> so I went to my room and I found the flesh-colored Crayola, just the perfect one. And I went back in the room and I colored it all in, filled it all in. It looked, it looked horrible, but I did it. And I said, there, I'm okay. Things are fine. And I went into my room and I went to bed. All of a sudden, it seemed like just a, you know, hours, I guess, I was sleeping, I don't know, but I heard this, I'll kill him, out of the other room. Daddy, Mommy, I'll kill him. And um, look what he did to my picture. And he, she was whole. And my, all of a sudden, the door opened, and my father came in. He had the album, and there's Elvis with his lip. With that, and it looked like he had this disease I mean, on his lip. It, it looked like he had a fungus growth on his lip. And I thought, I should have used a little red with that flesh. Um, and my father said, what did you do? And I explained, and he said, okay, he said, and she was crying. She was, she was sobbing and crying, and my father said, all right, you're punished. You know, I, he gave me some punishment. I don't know what it was, but I was unhappy, and he went out, and he shut the door. So I'm laying there in bed, and I gotta, now I've, my relationship with my sister is all messed up now. I got to get back into good graces, um, but I'm mad right now, and now I need um, Revenge is what I need. So um, I, I had this Pinocchio doll. I don't know if any of you remember this. It was a big, he was tall, as tall as I was at the time, and he had elastic bands on his feet. And you used to slide your foot under his feet, and you could dance with him. You know, his legs would move by a Pinocchio doll. Well, I quickly took that Pinocchio doll, and then I took my Crayolas, and I wrote, Carol, that was her name. And I put a sign on the doll, and I hung him by the neck from my doorknob, and I shut the door. So there it was. The Hill doll was hanging out there on the doorknob. I figured that will get her. That will get her. But she, she, she just uh, walked by and said, you think you're funny, don't you? And that was, I said, okay, that didn't work. So she was in the bathroom. So um, I, my, my parents had taken us to a restaurant, and I used to like to grab the little packets of ketchup and stuff. I had one in my room. So I had a little rubber knife, and I, I took my pajama top off, and I took the rubber knife, and I went into her closet, and I smeared some ketchup right on my stomach, and I held the rubber knife, and I just stood in her closet. Now, the door shut. Now, right in front of me, there was a bed, so I knew I could fall without getting hurt. And I'm standing in there waiting. Well, I didn't realize that she had taken a shower, and she was stark naked. <laughs> so I am standing there in front of the door, and all of a sudden, it opened up, and I just fell forward. And I landed on the bed, and of course, there's a big splotch of ketchup on a white bedspread. And I and she screamed at the top of her lungs, and she, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. She, she, she ran out of the room. My parents came flying up the stairs. I didn't pick up the pieces with my sister very well. Uh, and now I had a real problem with my mother because I had messed up the, the ketchup stains all over. She said, what is wrong with you? I never figured it out. <laughs> What is wrong with John? <laughs> On that note, what a great way to end. Oh, oh, thanks so much to all of tonight's wonderful storytellers. 
and to our studio audience, which really helps bring things to life here. Give yourselves all a round of applause. True Tales Radio will be back on July 26th with a theme of camping and summer camp. We're very excited for it. We actually have another mother-child team for that one, so it's going to be awesome. And we do still have room for a few more storytellers for that. Email us at truetales at wscafm.org as soon as possible if you would like one of those slots. If you would like to tell a story here next month or any month, but are unsure of yourself or want some help with your piece, Pat and I continue to offer storytelling workshops the first Tuesday of every month here at the station, 909 Islington Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, from 7.30 to 9 p.m. These are free and open to everyone. The next one is July 5th, so we hope that folks will turn out, bring their stories with them, and um, have that opportunity to share. <laughs>